For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today's episode is brought to you by Impact 360 Institute, where they create life-changing experiences for students. Go to impact360.org to learn more about that. Well, as Christians, it is so important that our worldview lines up with reality. And it is very, very important that what we believe about our bodies lines up with what the Bible says about what God created us to be as human beings. As human beings, we are a unity of a body and a soul. And sadly, many people in our culture and in our society have denigrated the body or viewed the body as less important. And that has an incredible impact on topics like homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, hookup culture, euthanasia. All of these come from a similar worldview that denigrates the body. So we're going to talk today with Nancy Piercy about her book, Love Thy Body. If you haven't read Love Thy Body, I recommend this book to you. I have read it twice through myself. We just read it through uh, with the book club on Facebook. If you are unfamiliar, this is something we don't talk a lot about on the podcast. We don't advertise it very often, but we have over 6,000 people in a book club on Facebook. And right now it's open for new people to come in. So you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club and apply for membership there. This is a group of like-minded Christians who are devoted to biblical Christianity. So you will have to sign a belief statement and agree to the group rules. But if that's you, we'll get you in for our next book study that will start in June. And I'm very excited to uh, announce the book we're going to be reading through in June. And it is an older one, but it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It is such a vital foundational resource for every Christian to be able to read our Bibles and 
interpret it properly. There are is so many bad interpretations out there, bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art, the science of interpreting the Bible properly. This is the book for you, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. We're going to read through that book starting in June. So if you want to get into that book club, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. We'll get you in and you can get your book and we can Get excited together and then start How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth in June. I uh, also want to let you know, my Southern California friends, we are coming to you very soon. In about a month, we're going to be in Chino Hills at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills for the Unshaken Conference. This is a conference that my friend Natasha Crane and I created to help you to live out your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. This is not like an apologetics conference. This is something that is very cultural. We want to equip you with the very practical resources to help you live out your Christian faith. So if you're in the Southern California area, you can go to unshakenconference.com and register for that today. We'd love to see you come out. Our other two conferences are going to be in Tucson on September 23rd and Nashville on uh, November 4th. And this month, in the month of April, those tickets are going to go on sale at unshakenconference.com. We would love to see you if you're anywhere within driving distance or flying distance. Come on out to any of those uh, events. We just would love to see you. All right. So today we are going to be talking with Nancy Piercy, who wrote what I think is one of the most important books of the decade, and that's called Love Thy Body. She's going to walk us through uh, the mind-body dualism that many people in our culture have bought into, where they see the body and the soul as a split entity and totally separated and unrelated to one another. Whereas as Christians, we know that we are a unity of mind and body, but those things together is what makes us human, right? In heaven, we will be embodied. We will have bodies in heaven. Of course, according to Christian theology, there can be a time when the soul is separated from the body. But what makes us human, what is that human nature, is a unity of mind and body. We are embodied beings, and we will have a body for eternity. So our bodies matter. They are not to be denigrated. They're not to be cast off. So we're going to talk with Nancy today. We have a live Q&A for those on YouTube. And if you're listening on audio platforms, you're listening to the replay. But I can't wait to bring you uh, just all these great questions that we get to talk with Nancy Piercy about today. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Good. Hey. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. Great. Well, we are we are live, and we have lots and lots of questions for you. And I am so glad that you've chosen to join us today. Um, I was so thrilled when you said yes to come on the the show today. I would love if you could just start by talking about. I was just talking about this a little bit, and you're going to do so much a better job than I did, but. Talk about how important it is that we have a biblical and healthy view of the body, because when we denigrate the body, when we don't feel that the body is has value, it can lead to all sorts of chaos. So talk a little bit about that, that mind-body split that your book talks about when it starts. Right. Um, so one of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught body good, spirit bad. Oh, I just said it backwards. <laughs> Right. <laughs> spirit good body bad yes <laughs> you better get that straight um and when i use that in my lectures i always got lots of nods you know a lot of people say oh yeah that that's basically 
a perspective I grew up in, that my body didn't really matter. This physical world didn't matter. All that really matters is the spiritual realm. And um, the trouble is that today, it, if we want to counter secular worldviews, it turns out that the secular view uh, underlying all the issues in my book, from abortion to euthanasia, to homosexuality, tra to transgenderism, and so on, the secular worldview denigrates the body. And if we want to be effective in speaking to our culture, we have to realize that, in fact, Christianity, Christianity has a much higher view of the value and dignity of the human body. And if we don't have that, if we don't thoroughly absorb that, we won't have an answer to the secular world in our day. So I think a lot of people have a hard time getting their minds around this because, um, as many of my students will say, well, wait a minute, if you are not a Christian, if you think the material world is all that exists, don't you, by definition, think the material world is really important? And the answer is no. You can think the material world is all that exists, but if it's a product of blind, mindless, purposeless forces, then it has no intrinsic purpose or value. And so you can be a materialist and still actually have a very low view of the value, dignity, and significance of the physical world, including the human body. So um, I'm, you know, my, my main goal is uh, as an apologist, right? So, you know, I came to Christianity as a young adult and th through apologetics, you know, I did have a lot of intellectual questions. And so for me, you know, I'm really motivated by, well, how do we answer the secular worldview? I actually had somebody recently say, well, haven't you almost overemphasized the body then mm. in your book? And my answer is no, no, I do in fact, in my book, I do qualify it by saying the, the physical world is not the most important part of reality. But as Martin Luther once said, if you're not uh, fighting at the point where the enemy is actually attacking, mm. you know, if you're fighting over here and you're fighting over there, but you're not fighting where the enemy is actually attacking, then you're not really in the battle. Mm. And right now it is the physical body that is yeah. under attack by the secular world. And that's why I focus on that. Yeah, that's so good because I remember when I first, when your book first came out and I saw the title and it even hit me a little bit because I think I came a little bit from a background that would have said, I, I, we mentioned this on the, on the live stream already where, you know, that phrase, you are a soul, you have a body, which, which is really popular in some Christian circles. And they, I don't think they're really thinking all the way through what they're saying. But when I saw the title, Love Thy Body, I thought, you know, I hope that's not going to just be like a self-help book. And I mean, which, of course, it is not. It is very, very good. And Nancy, I got to tell you, this is my second time through reading this book. We've just walked uh, our book club through. We've got over 6,000 people in our Facebook book club. And I, I think that I don't know if I've seen the group more engaged with a book than with this one. And it's just been so valuable and so helpful. And so, you know, they're very excited that you're here today to talk about some of this stuff. And I do think it's incredibly important that Christians—I uh, love that in the book how you even addressed some of the um, the tendency toward uh, denying the body and and living fasted and, and living where you're—you know, even Christians who used to go stand out in the cold and not eat at all and, and try to deny the body and deny the body, not realizing that that was kind of denigrating the body in a little bit. Could you speak to that a little bit? It's like, obviously, as Christians, the Bible recommends we fast and stuff, but it's not at the expense of the body, is it? 
Well, it's not because we have contempt for the body. It's not because right. we devalue the body. Um, you know, it's the motivation that is important here. The motivation for what you're describing is asceticism, right? Asceticism, the right. idea that holiness comes by denying the physical body, denying our physical needs, wants, denying physical pleasure. You know, a lot of people do have the assumption that holiness means saying no to some part of creation. Mm. Well, all of God's creation is good. <laughs> you know, so we should start with, you know, we have to start with the document of creation. You know, everything that comes from God's hand is intrinsically good. And yes, there may be times of fasting, but not because the body is evil or contemptible, but because uh, because we're sinners. And sometimes we need to counter our sinful urges and fasting can be a good discipline for doing that. So denying ourselves is not denying the, the way God intrinsically made us. It's denying our sin. I actually had a student once who said, um, oh, he was really good with uh, IT um technology and uh he just he said i'm going to be a lawyer i said well why that's not that's not what you're good at he said well my christian teacher he was at a christian college my christian teachers told me i should deny myself i said denying yourself doesn't mean denying your intrinsic gifts that god has right. given you denying yourself means denying your sin yes. i think that's another thing that people often confuse you know denying yourself means denying your sinful impulses not the good intrinsic um, self, the, the, the intrinsic personality and gifts and skills that God has given you. That's not what self-denial means in Scripture. Yes. In fact, uh, I'm thinking of the verse from Romans. It's um, Romans 13, 14 that says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I've heard Christians interpret this verse to mean something like, make no provision for the flesh. So I'm not supposed to plan what I'm going to eat and I shouldn't wear nice, you know, I shouldn't get clothes that are warm enough or something like this. But really that's when the Bible talks about flesh. It's not talking about necessarily the physical matter, but it's our sinful nature. It's make no provision to gratify the desire <laughs> that you have toward sin. And um, that's, <laughs> I think, such a helpful way to, to understand that. It it's, it's, can be confusing because like any language, the Greek in which the New Testament was written, the Greek sometimes has words that can be interpreted different ways. Like, uh, you know, don't, don't love the world, but God so loved the world. So world right. can have two different That's meanings. Right. And flesh has two different meanings in scripture too. Sometimes it does just mean your physical body, which is God's creation and which is intrinsically good. And sometimes flesh does mean your sinful self. So. Uh, one of the reasons, so, so that's important to recognize, you know, Bible, like any language, uh, has words that have, that can be interpreted differently. And we have to be very careful that we know which one is intended by the text. Also, we have to realize that historically, Christianity was influenced by Greek philosophy. In other words, the early church came into a culture that was um, influenced by uh, people like Plato and Aristotle who did, well, even more Gnosticism, mm -hmm. um, who did deny the value of the physical world, who said this world is well the realm of death, decay, and destruction. And so sin was defined in terms of, you know, immersing yourself in this physical world. And salvation was defined in terms of escape from the physical world, from the material world. And unfortunately, uh, as Christians sort of 
um, reached around for the language to describe their own theological views, they often picked up the language of their culture, which we all mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Um, but the language of their culture was this Greek philosophy, because you don't see in the Old Testament, you do not see a denigration of the material world in the Old Testament. You don't see a denigration of sex and marriage. You don't see a denigration of the physical realm. So like, where did it come from? It actually came from the Greek world. And the New Testament, you know, the, the early church fathers, the mid, uh, in, and even more so in the Middle Ages, many Christian thinkers were influenced by the Greek view, uh, which did that had a very sharp sacred secular split, and did say this world is, you know, this world is evil, or at least the source of evil, and the way to true holiness just to separate yourself from the world. And so that's why in the Middle Ages we get, say, the monasteries, mm. where to be truly holy like you said, you, you deny yourself good food, you wear a hair shirt, you, know, mm -hmm. you wear coarse clothing, you deny, you deny yourself marriage and sex, you deny yourself private property and you live in a monastery, you deny yourself community, uh, you know, living in the ordinary world, instead you go off and live in a monastery. So this kind of self-denial that uh, was very, very, very big in the Middle Ages. And so that's kind of what was still having to free ourselves from is that strong sacred secular split. I had a, um, there's, there's, there's a friend of mine who used to actually teach at Labrie. I met him for the first time when I was at Labrie and um, he likes to illustrate when he teaches, he has a fake, he has a fake Bible um, and he, where one part of it can be extracted. Mm. And he extracts that one part and throws the rest of the Bible across the, across the room to dramatically say, look, we've taken one part of the Bible mm. and we've gotten rid of the rest. We take out, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. You know, we take out the message of salvation and we throw away the rest. So we don't start with creation. We don't mm. start with, you know, this world is intrinsically good. It's God's handiwork. You know, the sin and the fall is real, but the fall is a bit like, you know, if a child takes a magic marker and scribbles on a great artistic masterpiece, you know, it, it, it defaces the masterpiece, but the beauty of the original mm. still shines through. Mm. And that's how we should think of sin and the fall. The beauty of creation still shines through and we should honor God by, by honoring his creation. Oh, that's such good stuff. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to take more questions with Nancy Piercy. Please write the word QUESTION in all caps if you want your question to be read on air. But I want to take a moment and tell you about our first sponsor today. That's Impact 360 Institute. I've talked about Impact 360 on the podcast before. You all know that I go uh, to Impact 360 three or four times a year. I speak at all the events, the Propel One Week experience for students. I speak at Immersion, which is a two-week experience for students. And I also go spend a couple of days every year with the gap year students. It's a nine month gap year program that is absolutely so wonderful. And here's what I love about Impact 360. They don't just turn your kids into apologetics robots. They integrate so much great discipleship, apologetics, theology, on-site training. So if you do the gap year program, you're going to go on a mission trip during that nine month uh, training time. If you go on the two week immersion experience, you're going to go out 
out and share your faith in places like uh, Buddhist monasteries or at at a mosque or even a secular college campus where you're going to interact with atheists and people who do not hold the Christian worldview. But Impact 360 is going to disciple our students through those experiences to help inoculate them for what they're going to face when they go out into the real world. So if you want to learn more about Impact 360, go to impact360.org. You can apply right now for the Propel experience. I think that's the only one that still has some spots left. Immersion is full for this year. But if you have a student who has uh, maybe an idea to take a gap year program before college, check out Impact 360. I highly recommend it. Again, check out impact360.org. Okay, Nancy, um, here's a question from one of our book club members. Do you see any way out of this transgenderism, or is it one of those things we just have to accept will be part of this fallen world? Never in a million years did I think that we'd be at the point where gender would be considered something one can feel instead of a biological reality. Oh, yeah. Great question. And I, I do get that question a lot because people say it is transgender ideology is so extreme, isn't it going to sort of collapse on itself at some point? I'm not as optimistic. And here's why. Um, the transgenderism, of course, does rely very heavily on the idea of a mind-body dualism, that your mind is separate from your body, that your body is not part of your authentic self, that your mind can mm. even contradict your body. In fact, uh, just today, I, I saw an article that quoted me. <laughs> I, did, um, I, uh, I, I didn't know this article was out there, and I just ran into it by accident today. It's in the public discourse. And the author argues that if we just focus on sports and bathrooms, you know, mm. the practical um, uh, policy issues, we're going to come across as, uh, you know, hateful and bigoted and so on, because that doesn't give us an opportunity to show a, a positive message. Whereas if you, and then, then he quotes me saying, if you focus on the mind-body dualism, it gives you a positive message because what you can say is Christianity has a high view of the body. You know, this is what we want to really communicate to people is that we value and give significance, moral significance to your body. That's a much better way to win people over, especially people who themselves may be struggling with gender dysphoria, is to say, you know, Christianity actually gives greater dignity and value to who you are, including your physical self. You know, that we, that we, we want to see you integrated, not disintegrated, not separated, yeah. you know, that fragmented self, you know, that your body, your body is separate from your mind, leads to its sort of inner fragmentation, even self-alienation. In fact, um, one of the books I read, I think it, I think it may have come out after Love Thy Body, and so it may not be in there. But it was a first academic level defense of transgenderism. So, of course, mm. I had to read it because what the academics say is what filters down eventually to ordinary people. And this was a Princeton University professor, and she was defending transge transgenderism. But to my great surprise, she admitted it involves self-alienation, self-division, self-conflict. I thought, this is a defense. Mm. <laughs> but then she said, but that's okay. Because, and, and this is a direct quote, what the physical body tells us is nothing. It has no meaning at all. Wow. So that's really the message that's percolating down all the way to preschool 
and you uh, yeah. and toddlers you know like the you, you probably saw the um blues clues with its gay pride gay, yes. gay pride parade so it's filtering all the way down to toddlers that your body your body has no meaning at all yeah. um and so the, the answer to the question is this dualism has been there for a long time as i said it, it started with the ancient greeks and the gnostics the manichees remember uh, augustine was a manichee yeah. um and in the modern world it starts with descartes you know descartes gives it a philosophical expression it's it's in kant Immanuel kant um it's it's so deeply rooted in the western mind that um it's going to take a lot to overcome it and my guess is it will continue for a while in fact when i give my talk on i'm now asked often to give a talk just on transgenderism sure you know, as, a, as opposed to the whole book lovely body um, and so I, I always end on transhumanism because we understand a movement better when we understand what its end game is and the end game for many transgender ideologues is trans humanism and i have several quotes from transhumanists actually saying transgenderism is just a stepping stone to transhumanism you know that people wow. who think they can separate their body from their mind are really just leading us to the next step which is we're going to transcend the body right we're, we're get, uh what's his name kurzweil who is the google director of engineering in other words these are not fringe characters here these are very prominent figures, Ray, Ray Kurzweil is his name, um, says, well, you know, why, why, why care about the human species? Species is a biological concept. What we're doing, this is a direct quote, what we're doing is transcending biology. Well, transcending biology is exactly what transgenderism says they're doing. And so it's not surprising that the next step for, for many of these, of the more ideologically motivated people is to trans transcend so to speak transcend biology altogether um the other one is martin rothblatt who is enormously wealthy the founder of sirius xm radio so extremely wealthy was a man named martin trans um trans transition to female identity and now calls himself martin by the way there was a there was a head headline not long ago in the news that said the the wealthiest female ceo is a man it's, mm. it's martin Rothblatt. perfect that's perfect <laughs> and he has he actually has a book called from transgender to transhumanism so i think that this trajectory is going to continue a while and it's up to but it's up to christians of course to see if we can break in and help people to see that it is a very fragmenting worldview it is like that princeton university professor said it's it's self-alienating it's self it's self-division we have to help people to see that that that's really a very dehumanizing worldview and that christianity offers something much better well your book does a beautiful job of giving that positive apologetic for the value of the body and how much more beautiful it is to see ourselves that way. You mentioned Augustine. I've recommended this on the podcast before, but one of my favorite books is Confessions, where he talks about leaving the Manichees and um, repenting for, you know, so specifically he's repenting for so many different things. And it always stood out to me, even before I really understood that, uh, that mindset of the physical being bad and the spirit being good, is that he had a concubine for 
I think, 11 or 15 years because for him, he could just separate that off because that's just the body. But, you know, he would work on his spiritual self. And then, of course, he was repenting for that in confessions. I always recommend that for people. But in your book, you really saw a lot of, I think, where we're at today, even though your book's only, what is it, about five years old, I think, maybe? What year? 2019, I think. 2019. Yeah, but, yeah, so. but we, the whole transgender diet, you know, conversation has progressed rapidly, even since 2019. Yes. I'd love for you yes. to comment on that because now we're seeing rapid onset, uh, onset gender dysphoria among, particularly among young girls. What updates would you give now, just these few years later, to where the conversation has gone today? Yeah. So when I give my uh, talk just on transgenderism. I actually start with some graphs showing uh, uh, from four countries, US, Australia, Sweden, and Britain, um, showing, I don't know if you guys can see my hand, hand motion, um, we'll get, I'm backwards. You, <laughs> um, you know, the, the rise of transgenderism, it was basically a, you know, a flat line. And then suddenly it's a cliff. It just rises dramatically. Um, and, and so that's what, what we're up against, the rapid increase in the number of young girls who are claiming a transgender identity uh, in britain where they have uh, state medicine so they have better records um in i think it was 2018 there was a four thousand percent increase in young girls who were claiming a transgender identity um and so in, in my book i do i, I do and i have lots more examples of course now and um what i already said it's gone younger and younger i mean Mm -hmm. I, I quote the Washington Post, you know, mainstream newspapers like the Washington Post featured a curriculum where first grade teachers were told to tell students, you may feel like a boy, even if you have what some people call girl parts, what some people call, you know, or you may be a girl, even if you have what some people call our boy parts. So that's third, that's first graders mm -hmm. being told you know, your body does not tell you anything about who you are. And young people are coming, I mean, little children are coming home from school saying, what am I? There was one case, it was in the news because the parents were bringing a lawsuit against the school. The little girl, first grade, first grade, the little girl was coming home and saying, mommy, my teacher said, well, just what the curriculum says, you know, my teacher said, you know, just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy, just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. So mommy, what am I? And this little girl actually said to her mom, please take me to a doctor so I can find out what I am. Wow. Um, and so they were suing the, the school for um, emotional distress. Yeah. So where I would, of course, where I would update it is it's gone lower and lower. I, you, you know, you can't say, oh, let's talk to our teenagers. No, you have to talk all the way down to your first graders and your toddlers today um, because that message is being imparted at a very young age. So that's, that's one update I would definitely make. Um, and, uh, the, the, another one is um, the difference between traditional um, gender dysphoria and the rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is which is totally new. Um, traditionally, when it was called transsexualism, it was almost always male, almost exclusively a male phenomenon, and it started when children were quite young. And so you may remember that in my chapter on transgenderism, I do start with the story of a very young child who was a boy and i mean before he was even walking it was clear that this kid was not a normal boy um as his babysitter said to his mom 
he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he was sweet, gentle, compliant, and the things that we normally associate with girls. When he was in preschool, every day when his mom picked him up, he was playing with the little girls, not the little boys. And in elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping frequently, saying, you know, I don't fit in anywhere. Um, well, his actual words were, uh, I think the way girls do, I'm interested in the, th in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. Mm. You know, what does, it do what does it do to a parent's heart, you know, when a child comes home? By his early teens, he was scouring the internet for information on sex reassignment surgery. So you say, what, what did his parents do? Um, and by the way, uh, I did just write an article on this for The Federalist. Um, giving more detail than I was able to do in the book. So if you want to follow up, it was it was in January. Um, so, but what did his parents do? You know, first of all, of course, they they urged him to take his identity from his body. Right, that our, our feelings can change and often do, but our body is a an empirical fact that does not change, and so it just makes sense to take our identity. It's it's just. It's just rational. It's more reasonable to take your identity from your body. They also told him that he did not have to be bound by sexual stereotypes. Um, they said, um, uh, it's okay. It's perfectly okay to be a gentle, sensitive, emotional, yeah. relational boy. It does not mean you are really a girl. It may be that God has equipped you for one of the caring professions like counseling, psychologist, healthcare worker. Uh, they even took him, his parents even took him through the Myers-Briggs personality test. I don't know if you have used that, but you know, men and women can be at both ends of the spectrum. You know, mm -hmm. boys can be gentle and sensitive and girls can be more take charge, rational, athletic, you know, whatever the, the stereotypes are. Uh, and here's what his parents said to him. It was, this was their favorite phrase. It's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. Mm-hmm. And he had a particularly severe case. In other words, you probably have heard that um, a lot of kids with gender dysphoria outgrow it, so to speak, in puberty, because there's that rush of hormones that often makes them feel more, you know, at home with their sexual identity. This Brandon didn't. <laughs> he, he continued into his early 20s. Um, I thought he, uh, he was about 21, and I thought he'd pretty much overcome it and I was talking to him and he and he's he um at the end of the conversation he tapped his chest like this and said but I'm still a girl on the inside and I thought oh, this gender dysphoria is really intractable it is a long difficult haul now he never here's the difference um he never did decide it was his identity mm. so he would say I have gender dysphoria but I'm not transgender mm. so that was the difference yeah um and, and he did what there's a there's a very famous um, TED talk by a cardiologist and the the most famous line from it is every cell has a sex mm -hmm. and as a cardiologist her concern was that uh, in the symptoms of an impending impending heart attack are different for men and women and so her point was well women are going to the doctors and the doctors don't recognize the symptoms because they've been trained to see only the symptoms that men have um, and they send the women home and they have heart attacks. But if you if you look at, watch it online sometime, it's called um, His his Her Healthcare, His Her Healthcare um, by Paula Johnson. 
at any rate, I, of course, I read the comments underneath to see what people are saying. And people were saying, oh, she's so transphobic. And you're like, what? She's a cardiologist. She said nothing about transgenderism. Yeah. But the very fact that she acknowledged the male-female binary in healthcare. And finally, somebody wrote, look, guys, she's not transphobic. She's just saying that when you get sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give you the best medical care. Yeah. So this is what Brandon, that was his, that's the name I gave him in the book. This is what Brandon finally realized. You know, I cannot, I can't, medically speaking, I can't actually change my sex. Here's how he put it. He said, a human being is not a computer disc that you can erase and start over again. Mm. So that's when he finally, like in his mid twenties, finally really uh, reconciled himself to his original sex as a male. Mm. Well, I think this is something that as Christian parents, we can start to feel really overwhelmed about in today's culture, our kids growing up in this culture that is, especially you mentioned, it's being pumped all the way into mm-hmm. media that's that's given to even preschoolers and elementary school. In fact, my husband and I noticed, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but we signed up for a particular um, streaming platform, but we thought we were protecting the kids by signing up for the kids version. So we signed up for the kids version and no noticed immediately that all of the videos that were put in the queue to just start playing after the one they had watched were all radical gender theory informed. They were all trying to pump in this radical gender theory. So we actually got rid of the kids version and just parental put parental controls on the adult version, which was not doing that. And that was so telling to me because it's like the indoctrination that they want to get a hold of kids at such a young age. But to encourage any Christian parents that might be watching this, I think that the gender question is probably easier to start younger than the sexuality question. And here's what I mean by that. It's like, you know, a four-year-old child, you can't really explain probably the mechanics of sexual intercourse for them to even understand some of the other stuff that's attached to that topic. But what you can do is teach them the difference between a man and a woman, a boy and a girl. Um, I remember with my daughter having pictures like, this is a man, this is a woman, just of, you know, the face so they can see. And, um, and explaining to them their anatomy, like you that you have, and use the real words, you have one of these, and that makes you a boy. You have one of these, this makes you a girl. And it's not just that, but other things, like you said, it's in every cell and what our bodies are designed to do. And also, I think we can bust the stereotypes as Christian parents. We, you, If you have a girl who's more into sports or what might be more stereotypically male, um, encourage her by saying, you, like you mentioned, and so beautifully in your book with the story of, I believe it was Brandon, you know, you can be an athletic female. You can be a female who is really into, uh, I don't know, chess or whatever the stereo. You can be into fixing cars and that doesn't make you a boy. That's a stereotype. In some cultures, it's the women who hunt and the men who cook. So, you know, some of these things are culturally constructed. And I think it's important for us to to point that out to kids, just as you did so beautifully in your book, that we we don't need to buy into all the stereotypes that our culture gives us on these things. Yeah. One thing that surprised me, uh, speaking of Brandon, he said the hardest place is the, is Christian circles. Christian circles are almost um, go overboard sometimes trying to stand against the culture. Mm. And therefore, they almost overemphasize some of the stereotypes. Um, Brandon, Brandon um, in his high school, there was a group of Christians who wanted to start a Christian Christian manhood group. 
Well, what did they emphasize? Well, the founder, the, the, the student who founded it uh, was from a military family, but they emphasized, you know, very much military virtues then, you know, sort of toughness and strength and, you know, the willingness to fight. Um, and Brandon didn't join the, he didn't join it. Um, uh, he said, he, well, I just, just to say, he said, he told me multiple times, Christian groups are actually the worst. So I think your, your point is well taken. Christians should really rethink the stereotypes. There's a, um, a book, excuse me, a movie, a documentary by BBC that uh, is called Transgender Kids, Who's, who's Right? <laughs> um, and it did feature a young girl who by age two was telling her parents, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. Wow. And when they refused to treat her as a boy, she would have screaming, fall down, temper tantrums. It was very, very difficult. His father said raising, her name was Alex, raising Alex was like a war zone. Um, it was very difficult. But they did find a gender clinic, by the way, this is when, this is before gender clinics were all closed, before the laws outlawed any sort of uh, therapy. Of course, now, now you pretty much cannot give therapy to yeah. kids who have gender dysphoria because unless you do anything but straight, you know, immediately affirm, you'll lose your license. So this was before that it happened. Um, and the gender clinic encouraged Alex to think, to be less rigid in her gender stereotypes. They said, you know, you could be, there's lots of different kinds of ways to be a girl. You can be a girl who plays with Barbie dolls or you can be a girl who plays hockey. This was in Canada. <laughs> One of the largest gender clinics was in Toronto, Canada. Well, at age eight, her parents finally took her to a softball team. And she said, oh, there's other girls like me. You know? right. she, literally, she literally said, I found girls who were maybe even more tomboy than I was and who were kind of sporty and athletic. She said, I had never seen that before. Well, to me, like I would have taken her when she was four, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eight years old, they finally discovered this, but, um, and it took, by the way, it took four more years. It took until mm. she was 12 before she really made the turn and accepted herself as a girl. Mm. But this was a, a gr another great example of where the stereotypes are what, you know, made her think she, she must be a boy because she did not fit the, the, the typical you know, sort of feminine frilly stereotypes. Um, she was she was much more of a tomboy. At any rate, I think it's what you the point you made is well taken. Churches really need to rethink this. We can affirm femininity and masculinity yes. as you know part of God's creation without buying into the cultural stereotypes, and, and that's important. Yeah, and that can be tough to untangle sometimes. But that's something we all need to start thinking a lot more about. And I uh, I hear somebody's got a book coming out coming up soon about the toxic war on masculinity that I'm looking forward to reading. That's your next book, right? We'll have to have you back to talk about that one. Um, we're going to go to a quick break, and in a moment, we're going to come back with a question about IVF, so I'm looking forward to your answer on that one, but I want to tell you about our next sponsor for today. Of course, Good Ranchers, you guys, I, I just have to make some confessions to you today. So I already subscribe to Good Ranchers for monthly, but my husband and I have been talking about this for a while. We we bought the Prepper Pack today, and we if you go on Good 
goodranchers.com. You can look at the prepper pack. Um, we just got a freezer in our laundry in our little laundry room area, and so we are going to fill it up with Good Ranchers meat. And there's three reasons that I really think Good Ranchers um, has really changed the way, honestly, that I buy meat, and I think it should change the way you buy meat as well. So first of all, if you subscribe this month in the month of April, you're going to get free bacon for a year. That's $240 worth of free bacon. That's a pound and a half of bacon in every box. And so go to goodranchers.com and you can take a look at that while I tell you the other reasons I have. And, you know, the bacon tastes so good because the pork is made the right way. And here's what I mean by that. The pigs are never in crates. And that happens a lot on factory farms. They're put in crates, but Good Ranchers never uses antibiotics or hormones. And their pork is from heritage breeds. And if you know anything about pork, heritage breed is historically produced the best pork in the world. So the second reason I think you should subscribe is that you can lock in your price, right? So when I go to the grocery store, those prices are going up. We're seeing inflation. And my grocery bill would go up every week, except that my Good Ranchers price on my subscription is locked in for the life of my subscription. So you can lock that price in and then not be affected by inflation as those prices likely are to go up. And so the third reason, the final reason you should subscribe is just because everything they sell is so good. From all natural burgers to USDA prime steaks, better than organic chicken. I love that triple trimmed chicken. You know that. Um, This is just going to change your standard for how you buy meat. And we just love it. In fact, I mean, I know I'm just making confessions, but I've got I've got a couple packages of uh, ground beef thawing up there because we're going to eat tacos after this live stream. So it's just great. It makes it a no brainer. Makes dinner super easy. So head over to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code Alisa. You're going to get twenty dollars off your first box. So you can get free bacon, great meat, secure price, and a bonus twenty dollars off today. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code Alisa. GoodRanchers.com. American meat delivered. All right. Nancy, we're back, and we've got a big question for you about IVF. This is from Jackie on Facebook. So being childless creates heartache for many Christian couples. IVF can make it possible for a couple to have children. However, this comes at an ethical, emotional, and spiritual cost. There are costs to frozen embryos kept in storage for future use, for frozen embryos kept in limbo and then destroyed or used for other scientific purposes. I really feel for people in this situation, so this question comes not from a place of judgment. But how do we support and witness to childless couples and those contemplating IVF programs to have babies? How do we support those who have had babies through IVF and now feel guilt over the process? Oh, do they? Uh, I, I was not aware that they do feel guilt after the fact. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard that part. Um, I, I, my students read Peter Singer this last semester. Peter Singer is one of the, um, well, one of the most influential secular bioethicists. He teaches at Princeton, and in many ways, um, the people who first begin. I first got this body person dualism idea from from Catholic thinkers. They had applied it to abortion and euthanasia. They had not yet applied it to homosexuality and transgenderism. So that's where my book goes a step further. Um, but they had applied, Catholic thinkers had applied it to uh, abortion and euthanasia. And the reason they did is because they were analyzing what Peter Singer was saying. And Peter Singer was defending abortion with this body person dualism. In other words, he was saying, uh, 
so I, I take my students through his his chapter on abortion. And at first they're, they're really stunned because he, he debunks all the typical liberal arguments. You know, the typical, the liberal arguments like, well, it's, it's not really human or it's part of the woman's body or whatever. He's debunking them all. And my students are like, this guy's great. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like he's on our side. And then suddenly they get to the part where he pivots and he says, well, of course the fetus is human, but that has no moral significance. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that the, the fetus has any moral standing. That doesn't mean that it warrants legal protection. Being a member of the human race or the human species doesn't have any moral implications at all. You have to become a person defined in terms of a certain level of cognitive functioning, uh, mental abilities, self-awareness, and so on. And he has really set the stage for most secular bioethicists today. Most of them today do argue that way. They do not deny that the fetus is human. Uh, the, the fetus is human from conception. You know, to, to some of us still think that's the debate, at least amongst yeah. professional bioethicists, that's not the debate. They know that the fetus is human from conception, and they will say so. And they all borrow from Peter Singer. They all say, but it's not a person. So that's where the body person dualism first arose is we, we began to see secular people making that distinction. And that's how we realized we needed to start addressing that, um, that fragmented divided notion of the human being. Um, and he, interestingly enough, he says, moral conservatives, which includes most Christians, are actually inconsistent on in, on in vitro fertilization because they're not acknowledging that to get to the point where we are now, you had to kill a lot of you had to you had to have a lot of failures, you had to have a lot of failures in the lab where you put the sperm and egg together and it didn't work. In other words, you had to kill a lot of embryos. Mm. If you're opposed to killing embryos, you have a problem with in vitro fertilization because we only got to the point where we're not successful. Well, and by the way, we're not that successful. Uh, for people who've tried, um, it's, it's very expensive and you have a lot of failures still. The, the failure rate is quite high. Um, but his point was, you, you moral conservatives haven't really thought this through because you're saying a fetus, that the fetus is human from conception and yet you're accepting a technology that has allowed us to kill a lot of embryos. So I do think Christians need to think through this carefully. Um, in, in Love Their Body, I was thinking of a quote. Um, I, pulled up, I pulled up my book while you were promoting the Good Ranchers. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but there was a quote from Gilbert Mylander. He is a Lutheran bioethicist. And he talks, he has a section here. Uh, if you, if you um, want to go back and look at it in the book, it's on page 253, 254. And he does warn that we have become, that um, we're developing a commercial mindset toward babies. You know, that in vitro fertilization and surrogate motherhood and so on are creating a notion that the baby is a, is a commercial product. And that when you pry uh, reproduction loose, you know, from natural parenthood, you do allow for a mentality to develop that children are products. And mm. he notes the, um, the he notes the dangers of that. And of course, as he says, um, 
Children become merchandise to be evaluated according to standards of quality control. And if the paying parents do not believe they are getting their money's worth, they may reject the product, which of course has happened many times. You know, if the baby turned out to have uh, Down syndrome or something, the parents, you know, return the product. Um, and, and here's how he puts it though. Here's the key quote. He said, um, the technological mindset is apt to see everything, even children, as raw material subject to human control and remaking. And my land at Warren's quote, we are tempted to see ourselves as only a free spirit detached from a body. There you go. There's that body person dualism to see ourselves only as a free spirit detached from the body. What we risk here is a separation of person and body that demeans the body and makes of it a thing, you know, a product, the commercial mm -hmm. product. I think that's the, that is something we really need to come to grips with as we look at um, in vitro fertilization. Yes, I've had some friends who've done it as, as well. And actually I do promote, I do encourage snowflake babies because those babies are already there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's like adoption, you yes. know, adoption. Those babies are already there. Snowflake babies are a form of adoption. Yeah, I, um, you know, Nancy, I was at a speaking event and somebody, this woman brought um, her baby and, and, you know, I was like playing with the baby and she said, this is a snowflake baby. And I didn't know what that was. I said, what is a snowflake baby? She said, we adopted an embryo. I could, I had never heard of that before. And what a beautiful way to honor life and to, you know, to, to just live out that pro-life ethic, just to get to meet this baby that was, that was an embryo, a frozen embryo until, it, until I think it was a she was adopted. Yeah. Yeah. One of my friends has a snowflake baby. So yeah, I've, I've walked with them through that process. But the other thing about, um, in vitro fertilization, of course, is that it has opened the door to surrogate motherhood. So there we have another body. We have the mother's body, the surrogate mother's body. And again, um, uh, I just saw something. I saw an article just today. You know, Twitter's so great. You see so many articles, but they go past so quickly. There was an article on how the mother's body is dehumanized, the surrogate mother. Mm. You know, they are called tummy mommies. <laughs> and belly buddies, you know, they're developing cutesy little titles as a way of saying, you know, you're not really the mother, you know, yeah. we're just using your body. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, and again, this is something I do talk about in the book. And I, so I'll, I'll call your attention to it. Um, it's under baby farming. <laughs> um, but this, this was a, a quote by a journalist named Julie Bindel. I really like her stuff. She's a lesbian. <laughs> um, so I thought this was interesting that as a lesbian, she would write about the dangers of surrogate motherhood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, rent rent a womb, mm -hmm. rent a womb. Yeah, wombs she, for rent. Yes. Yeah. Um, she says, and and this is the quote on page ninety six: the accelerating boom in surrogacy for gay couples. Now remember, she's gay. For gay couples represents a disturbing slide into the brutal exploitation of women who usually come from developing countries and are often bullied or pimped into selling their wombs to satisfy the selfish whims of wealthy gay or lesbian Westerners. And she said, what, and then she goes on to say, this is you know total hypocrisy. Here we are against sex trafficking, but this is the kind of reproductive trafficking. So, the two bodies here, you know, there's the, the baby's body 
and we're treating it as though, as Myland, Gilbert Mylander said, you know, the spirit is separate from the body and the body is reduced to a thing. But there's the mother too, who's also reduced to sort of a commercial production machine. Yes. So those are the things we need to consider when we think about in vitro fertilization. I had a friend who um, was a surrogate mother for her, one of her best friends. And what a lot of people don't talk about with the surrogacy is when you're pregnant, when you have a child in your body, your your body releases all sorts of hormones that are bonding you to the child. And my friend went through that and she even knew what to expect. She's like, I know that, you know, in three days, my milk is going to come in and I'm going to feel <laughs> these, you know, incredibly strong bonding hormones toward this child that is not mine. And she it was it was very emotionally difficult for her when that all happened, even more than I think she expected. And that's something they don't really uh, tend to talk about when they talk about this is the yeah. the impact that has on the surrogate mother and how much you have to just kind of disconnect yourself from your body, your and body. especially if it's somebody you don't even know and you're just like a womb for rent and and how that that um just the psychological impact of something like that well not only that but the baby so yes. i was reading up on adoption recently and i didn't realize how much literature there is out there now on um, even if you adopt at birth or shortly afterwards, babies, uh, adopted children are growing up and, and having to work through some trauma because they've bonded to the mother as well. Mm. Yeah. They've bonded to the mother. They've heard the mother's voice for nine months. You know, the, uh, again, uh, even the biochemical bonding. I had not realized how extensive it can how traumatic it can be for the baby as well that the baby is bonding to the mother mm. as well um and and of course uh, you know we don't want to say adoption is bad adoption is is something that um it's wonderful for you know being able to step into a difficult situation and redeem it but we have mm. we need to be aware that it still is not the ideal and we may have some issues we need to work through even when a child is adopted from birth, sometimes there's elements of trauma because of that, you know, bonding that happens right. even in the womb. Yeah, right. Okay, good stuff. Uh, we're going to move on to another question here from Facebook. Um, how can I walk with friends whose 15-year-old daughter has declared herself a boy? She has also said she won't go to church anymore. They are looking to parent with truth and love. Yeah, you know, that's why I spend so much time on Brand the Brandon story. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because, you know, um, I mean, his was in some ways even more severe because he was, he had gender dysphoria from a very young age, by the way. Uh, this So he's, he's what, 20, he's 26 now. So when he was little, transgenderism was hardly anything but a term, you know, we just didn't know much about it. And, and his parents made a point of never using the word transgender in his presence. <laughs> they, they didn't want him to even know that was an option oh. <laughs> because they sensed from an early age that he had gender dysphoria and that he, he was going to have a difficult time. But um, so, so we're back to, we're back to um, helping a young person recognize that there is an underlying worldview. I think young people tend to be very focused on their feelings and they think i'm just trying to be true to my feelings you know whether it's a, a, a child who is uh, experiencing attraction to the same sex or a child who's experiencing gender dysphoria um in both cases it's easy for the child to think well i'm just following my feelings i have these really intense feelings we have to help them to get a little bit of distance and say well actually 
when you make a choice, you, you know, you can't choose your feelings. Okay, let's let's yeah. make that clear. So people don't feel guilty for their feelings. You know, just like you got, can't choose whether you're going to feel angry or jealous or, you know, those feelings just bubble up in us. So we don't want to make young people feel guilty for their feelings. They, they, they don't choose their feelings, but they do choose what they do with them. And what we have to help them to see is when you make a decision, a choice, you're not just choosing to go with your feelings. You're choosing a worldview. You're choosing a worldview uh, with gender dysphoria, for example. You're choosing a worldview that says my body doesn't matter, that my body is expendable, my body's insignificant, my body's irrelevant to who I am. You're buying into the transgender ideology that denigrates and demeans the body. And we have to help them to realize that even if they're not intending to do it, because they'll say that, you know, well, I, I don't mean to do that. Um, we have to help them to see that an action has a logic of its own. So if I choose, if I'm a woman and I choose to live as a man, that action in itself says, why should I take my identity from my body? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in the way I live and in, in the way I choose to identify? Uh, in my moral choices. So even if we don't intend to, our actions have a logic of their own, mm. and we are in fact endorsing a particular worldview. And we have to kind of help them think through. This is one worldview. This is a, the secular worldview that says your body has no meaning or significance. Like that Princeton University professor defending transgenderism who says point blank, what the physical body tells us is nothing. It has no meaning at all. We have to help people see that's actually what you're endorsing when you choose to adopt a transgender identity over against. And then and then you show them the Christian view, which says your body is a creation of a loving God. It is a product of, of intention and will and purpose. Let, let me give you a good quote. So um, there is a uh, a well-known public intellectual named Camille Paglia. Do you know her? I do. Yeah, yeah, I thought you would. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Christians know her because she's, um, th though she's a feminist, she's a bit of a of an iconoclastic feminist because she does not think gender or sex is a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Uh, nature made us. Nature made us male and female. Now she has identified for many years as a lesbian. Did you know she's come out as trans now? No, I did not. Uh, it, yeah. Now that's interesting yeah. because isn't she kind of put in that group of the trans exclusive radical feminist? Isn't she kind of in that group that gets called TERFs or no, not so much? Uh, no, because apparently not. She, yes, you would have thought that because she was, like I said, she she has she hasn't been a typical feminist. She has yeah. said nature made us male and female. But over a year ago, I mean, I went and double checked she wow. came out as trans. So, but either way, the logic is the same. Her logic is this. Um, nature made us male and female. You know, who may, oh, oh, wait. She has a quote where she literally says, we are designed for sexual reproduction. Designed. <laughs> a strange word for an atheist. <laughs> um, and then you say, well, if we're designed, you know, as male and female, how do you justify being, well, either lesbian or trans? You know, the, they both reject the body. And here's how, here's how she explains it. She says, well, nature made us male and female, but why not defy nature? That's her words. Why not defy nature? After all, again, direct quote, 
fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Wow. So the, right, the logic here is if our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we are moral, morally obligated to respect. You know, they, they give us no moral message. They give us no clue to our identity. We may do with them as we see fit. So that is the worldview behind both the, the homosexual and the transgender movement. And of course, our argument is, well, the body does have purpose. We are morally obligated to respect it. Science itself shows us that living things are structured for a purpose. You know, eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, wings are made for flying, fins are made for swimming. In fact, the development of the entire organism is driven by an inbuilt plan or blueprint, the, the DNA code. So science is on our side here mm -hmm. when we make the case that our bodies do exhibit a plan, a design, a purpose. And our argument is that people will be, or if you're talking to your 15-year-old daughter, you will be happier and healthier when you live in accord with that purpose. Yeah. So again, it's a positive message is my is my point. We yeah. have to help them just, I'll, I'll give you one more story because this was also in the book, it's Rebecca, and she had, uh, she was attracted to other women. Even after she got married, she continued to have a problem with it. And so she discussed it with her husband one day and he, here's how he put it, it's very similar. He said, because you are biologically a female, because this is how God made you, that no matter what your feelings are right now, and that's how we have to talk to our children sometimes, no matter what your feelings are right now, I understand you will, you can be confident that you will ultimately be more fulfilled with a man, yeah. uh, sexual relationship with a man. And, and of course, she said, uh, her, this is Rebecca, Rebecca's husband said, of course, you know, it goes both ways. I'm a man. And so whatever my feelings might be, I can be um, convinced, confident that I will be ultimately more fulfilled with a woman. And and that was a turning point for Rebecca because yeah. it was logical. It made sense. Yeah, that was a powerful yeah. story. Yeah. And, and again, it took several years. <laughs> and, and that's another thing we have to realize. We tend to think someone's either 100% homosexual, 100% heterosexual. But it actually, it's, it's more like alcoholism. A, mm. a lot of alcoholics, you know, they go for years, sometimes having, you know, sometimes sliding back into alcoholism, often having temptation, just because someone still continues to have temptation. You know, we, we shouldn't overpromise. This is how um, conversion, so-called conversion therapy got a negative image, partly because it overpromised. It said, if you do our program, you know, you'll be completely free of any temptations or attractions. Well, that's not true. It, it's it's rarely true. Most people do struggle with it for years. I mean, God can zap people. Sure. <laughs> once sure. in a while. <laughs> once yeah. in a while. <laughs> we all my have stuff we struggle with. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> my mother-in-law was a, a severe alcoholic and God zapped her and she was healed overnight. That's yeah. not common. <laughs> yeah. So we should realize that with most people, we shouldn't make them feel guilty because they ha continue to have temptation. It's, it's a process. Yeah often over many years. For Rebecca, I, I said, when her husband made that comment, it was a turning point. It took about four more years before, yeah. you know, she was really free of sort of the compulsive attraction, you know, the, the girl crushes, girl yeah, crushes, yeah. you know, yeah. as, as teenagers call it. Um, so, so it helps us sometimes, I think, to realize it, it, it can be gradual um, yeah. and, and we can support people through the process.
That's really good. And and to the person that was asking about the 15-year-old, I, I, everything Nancy just said, I, I agree with wholeheartedly. And I would just add, too, there's so much pressure on parents to go ahead and do some interventions. And I would just advise any parent out there, absolutely under no circumstances, do not consent to any sort of, um, you know, puberty blockers or anything that might, you know, they'll say, oh, it just presses the pause button on puberty. And as Nancy, as your book points out, and others have pointed out in recent years, you know, this is not the case. These these are uh, the people, this hasn't even been studied long term as far as puberty blockers go. And um, I would just be, I would be so adamant that you will not consent to any sort of um, interventions that could really come back to, to haunt your child in the future. Yes, we should really listen to detransitioners. You know, yes. there's so many detransitioners, detransitioners, that is people who transitioned to the opposite sex and underwent some level of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgery, and so on, and then said, oh, oh, I made a huge mistake. And there's growing numbers of them, and it's wonderful. You should def yes, that's what par parents should definitely look up the, the uh, detransitions. Chloe Cole, Chloe, yes. C-O-L-E, Cole. Um, is, yeah, is she there. was recently on the jo Jordan Peterson podcast. Yes, um, a few was. weeks ago. I recommend everybody go listen to that because that conversation was so eye-opening to me and just the struggles that, that she continues to have. She was um, basically had gender dysphoria as a young girl and then was sort of moved into transition by the time, I think she was maybe 16 or 17. And she was sharing some of the struggles she continues to have as a result of some of those alt, you know, life-altering surgeries and interventions and drugs and all of the things that still continue to haunt her to this day. It's a powerful episode uh, that I just recommend everybody go listen to because it really opened my eyes to what life is like for somebody who had those types of irreversible damage done to their bodies. One, one of the first detransitioners I found was a young girl, um, not a Christian. She had transitioned to male when she was 11. And, and then she had lived as a trans boy for three years and detransitioned at age 14. And she was interviewed um, on, a, on a very secular website. By the way, this is another resource. Um, there are some good websites out there for parents who are dealing with this issue. And this one's, it's not Christian, but it's called Fourth Wave Now. Fourth right. Wave Now. Um, this is parents and professionals, therapists and others who are concerned about this issue. And this was an, a, an interview on that website. Um, and there's a few others too, but I would start there. Um, and she said, and this is what she said. Um, I realized, she said, the turning point came. Um, in, in her detransition, de when I realized, and this is a direct quote, it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm. And I th this came out after my book. Wow, and I thought, what, what a, a great, great quote. quote. Yeah. That would have been for a that book is. titled Love Thy Body. And it's not, and it's, and it's not just true. I just ran into a few days ago, there's another woman um, who transitioned to male as an, even as an adult. She still said, uh, she goes up by the name, she goes by a male identity still, Scott Nugent. Um, yes. Do you know Scott? Yeah. Yeah. Was, on the the was they were on the uh, Matt Walsh documentary. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so she was she, she was on Twitter the other day because she did a little video where she was saying don't don't transition your kids because she's still dealing with so many yeah. health issues from her transition, and and here's what she said. She said we need to help 
young people learn, direct quote, learn to love their natural bodies. Yeah. I thought, you know, secular people are seeing it. They're yes. seeing that the issue here is your body. Um, the the issue is, uh, you know, do you have that transgender, well, body hatred. That's, that's a term you're starting to hear now, in, even mm-hmm. in secular circles, that transgenderism represents body hatred. Um, and I wanted to uh, follow up on what you said about uh, therapists. Do not take your child to a gender therapist. That's right. And yeah, do oh. not, no gender affirming care, any of that. Do not. Well, you know, people think, oh, well, they're a professional. They're all affirming. Unless you, if you write to me, I know the one or two, the one or two out there who are not. I can't remember her name right now. Um, But there's only a few. And of course, you know, they they do do counseling online on Zoom uh, because how else do you find them? They're not local. Yeah. and here's here's the uh, at least something positive, and that is some nations, Sweden, Finland, the UK, are starting to change their policies on this issue. They're starting to pass laws against transitioning for minors. Oh wow, wow, that's good to and hear. Some, yeah, and some states here, the US too, like Florida and Ohio, I think Tennessee. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I think Ohio was the most recent. At any rate. Um, but let me tell you about the UK because this was very interesting. So there's a young woman who transitioned at a young age, uh, Kyra Bell. That's her name, Kyra Bell. Um, she, oh, she you know, transitioned I, I, starting at age 13 or something like that. Um, and she went to the largest clinic in the UK, which is called the, the Tavistock. And they transitioned her. And then she, she later detransitioned. And she brought a lawsuit against the Tavistock, against the clinic, and went all the way to the what they call the High Court, which is their Supreme Court. And she won. <laughs> she won. Wow. Um, unfortunately, on appeal, she lost. Mm. But through that lawsuit, the justices found out what was happening at the gender clinics. Mm. And she said they were shocked. They had no idea that young people would be trans- transitioned at such a young age and with so little counseling. You know, that, that was her lawsuit, right? That I had wow. all kinds of trauma and, and psychological issues. None of them were addressed. I was just fast-tracked into transitioning as if that would solve it all. So that was the essence of her lawsuit. And so they closed down the Tavistock. They closed the clinic. Wow. <laughs> The largest gender clinic in the UK was closed because of her lawsuit, because that publicized the issues. And, you know, when the public found out what was really happening at this at this clinic. And by the way, a lot of clinic, a lot of clinic workers uh, joined the protests. They were seeing it and they were disagreeing with it. So anyway, this is this is huge. The largest gender clinic in the UK was closed. Um, and so we, we have we have hope. Yeah, here we have hope. Right. Are, and that's what Jordan Peterson is even predicting. It's this is all going to go to court. This is all going to get settled in the yes. courts. Like this is it where is. this is heading. And you mentioned Scott and I said they because I couldn't remember if it was a male to female or female <laughs> to male. But if anybody has watched the What is a Woman documentary by Matt Walsh, Scott showed her arm where the muscle was removed 
for the surgery. And it's, I mean, it's just so sad to see things like that where people are being mutilated and um, not taught to love their bodies, which hopefully people will read your book and learn to do that very thing. So love the body that God gave them. Well, Nancy, we're about out of time, but I would love to just give you the last word. Is What would you like to leave our audience with? What, what kind of encouragement for Christians that are living in this particular cultural moment? Wow. Um, That's a big question. We did, we did cover an awful lot. Yeah. Um, is there anything left that I we that we didn't cover? Well, we didn't um, really talk about because in the in the ta- in the thumbnail we we mentioned how transgenderism, hookup culture, abortion, oh, and how they're uh-huh, all connected. Uh-huh. So maybe uh-huh, you can kind of tie that up for us and and how those are all kind of connected from and come from the same worldview. Good point. Yes, because that's what's really unique about the book. Like I said, there are some Catholic thinkers who applied it to abortion. Um, you know, some people, we tend, Francis Schaeffer actually said this once. He said, we tend to deal with each issue individually. You know, we we argue, we uh, memorize the arguments for this issue and we memorize the arguments for that issue. And he said, what we fail to do is address the underlying worldview. And so that's what I that's what's most unique about the book, because I do show that all of them end up with the demeaning of the body. So abortion, um, we touched on it already, but it's the idea that professional bioethicists agree that biologically, physiologically, genetically, the fetus is human. You know, mm. The evidence from science, from genetics and DNA is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that and support abortion? They say, well, the fetus is human, but it's not a person. So that's where that split was first applied with the abortion issue. And of course, euthanasia, it's the same reasoning, just in reverse. You know, they say, you know, if if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person. And at that point, uh, there's one bioethicist who says, you are only a body. I thought that was an in- mm. interesting way. If it, you are only a body, and if you're only a body, if you're merely biologically human, then of course your organs can be, uh, your organs can be removed, your food and water can be discontinued, your treatment can be stopped, you can be unplugged. So again, the, the whole issue rests on, you know, be, being human. Well, being human is not enough for human rights. So the, it, it, it has undermined the whole notion of human rights because being human, when here are people who are admittedly human, whether it's a fetus or whether it's in, you know, the euthanasia, admittedly human, and yet we're being told that, that that gives them no moral standing, that gives them no, no rights, that gives them no legal protection. So the whole, it topples the whole notion of human rights. Mm-hmm. And th- so that's kind of the bigger issue that's impacted. The hookup culture, um, I deal with people who basically, um, I have a lot of quotes in there from, um, from college students who basically say, the only way I can participate in the hookup culture is to separate my mind from my body. Uh, this uh, young college student named Alyssa who says, um, the hookup culture is very scripted. This is her, These are her words. Very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. So there's, you know, essentially they're training themselves in the body person split. And there's a quote from a college student who was quoted in Rolling Stone magazine, who said the mistake people make is they think that there's two different dimensions that can be separated. You know, the sexual side of the relationship and the emotional side of the relationship. 
and they pretend that there are clean lines between them. That's their actual words. So you can almost visualize that little diagram that you that you saw in the book. Mm-hmm. Body, body, person. Here it's sexual versus personal relationship. Uh, there's a Christian uh, college psychologist who said the two most prescribed medications on the college campus today are birth control pills and antidepressants. Wow. And she said that's not a coincidence. Yeah. So the hookup culture is another expression of, you know, I can separate who I am as a person from what I do with my body. And then homosexuality, some people find that one a little bit harder. It's not as obvious as transgenderism because you know, transgender activists argue very explicitly, my identity is not my body. But think of it this way with homosexuality. Um, even my homosexual friends agree that physiologically, biologically, anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one another. That is how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity is therefore to contradict that design. You know, it's to say, well, why should I take my identity from my body? Why should I live in accord with the obvious design? Of my body, why should I? Why should my moral choices be restrained in any way by my biological sex, as male or female? So it really is a denigration of the body. Um, we're back to we're back to that Camille Paglia quote, which you know, as a lesbian, she was still a lesbian when she wrote that. You know, when she said, you know, why not defy nature? Who cares? And and that's totally logical. If there is no God, if we are products of blind material forces with no purpose. Why should you be restrained by your body? I mean, I would feel the same way if I was not a Christian. That's the logical implication. Now, technically, even then, is that is that healthy? Even the non-Christian should be able to say, see that it's not healthy to live in that sort of fragmented dichotomy between my mind and my body. It's, it's not healthy to be fragmented and fractured, and divided in that sense. Um, but But the logic is there. So in other words, Every issue, all of these issues, surprisingly enough, end up uh, hinging on your view of the body. And that's why it's so important for Christians to recover a holistic worldview where instead of having the sacred secular split, you know, where we kind of say, oh, well, the material world is, is yeah. not what's important. You know, what's really important is the spiritual realm. No, we have to go back to Genesis, back to creation, yes. because all of creation comes from God's hand. All of creation has meaning and dignity because it was created by a loving God who intended it to be the way it is. Very good. Well, I want to thank my guest, Nancy Piercy. What a gift to have her on the podcast today. Please like and subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. And again, if you're watching on or you're listening on audio platforms, it helps us so much when you rate and review. We have so many great reviews on Apple. So much appreciate that. It helps get the word out and get this into uh, the hands of more people. If you want to go deeper into topics and you're looking for a place to do some higher education, I can't recommend Southern Evangelicals seminary highly enough. They are the seminary that I am currently a student at. I'm taking my philosophy class. And if you're looking for great education, ses.edu slash Elisa, you can download a free ebook there. Uh, I just love SES. You guys know that. I talk about it all the time. But in the meantime, let's remember as we pursue Christ to keep a sharp mind, uh, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.